Readable Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're toppling your TBR pile with Shakespeare-inspired stories, retellings, and adaptations. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. This is going to be a fun one. I know. I have to admit, today is one of those that I'm kicking myself for procrastinating because I opened up our little outline to put my books in, and I looked at the books you'd put in, and I was like, oh, I wanted to talk about those books. <laughs> well, you can talk about them, too. So I'll keep I'm, the details sparse so you can fill some in. <laughs> I'm really excited to hear why you chose these ones. I think you picked some great ones. And um, we're going to be sharing 10 titles today. And I, I think we have a good variety of like direct retellings, just some inspiration, um, some kind of theater sort of stuff stuff. Um, yeah, this is going to be fun. Should we just get right into the titles? I feel like this is such a self-explanatory episode. Sometimes with these TBR Dopplers, we're like, let's talk a little bit about the genre and let's talk a little bit about why this, why now? But this is just Shakespeare. This is fun. We're reading Macbeth this month. (laughs) Yeah. I will just say, I think the one thing that I wanted to say at the top is that there are so many more Shakespeare retellings I want to read. Mm-hmm. Like I thought that I had read quite a few and and I have, but there are more that I'm aware of that then I was like, oh, I think I've just like kind of have had that title floating in my brain to be able to tell students about, et cetera, but I haven't actually read it. So I added a lot to my own TBR um, from this list. There are so many. So the five that I chose to talk about today, I have read. Is that true for your five as well? Yes, but I picked three others that are like topping my TBR to share over on Patreon because we're going to do some bonus book recommendations over there. Okay, How about you? Same. Yeah. Okay. Same exact. I, I wanted to save the TBR for Patreon just so that I can like... The public ones, I really want to be able to vouch for these books. So, all right, let's let's get into it. Do you want to start, Sarah? Sure, I will start um, with a Macbeth retelling. Um, I read this a long time ago, and to be honest, I think it might be out of print. I like cannot find it, but it is available on Kindle on Amazon. Um, or, oh, you can get like, you can get used copies. The paperback is insanely expensive, $23, I think because Weird. it must be out of print. Yeah. And that that makes me a little bit like leery because I'm like, is this book just so bad? No one else read it. But I remember really enjoying this book. <laughs> um, and it's right in my wheelhouse of stories retold from a feminist lens. Um, But this isn't maybe the direction one would think we go with Macbeth. It's not told from the perspective of Lady Macbeth. It's told from the perspective of one of the three witches that Macbeth encounters um, and that kicks off the, the play. 
I love a story where there's a prophecy and in trying to prevent the prophecy from occurring um, or maybe in misinterpreting the prophecy, it leads to a character's downfall, which is obviously very much uh, Macbeth. And we get the the history of these witches in this story. So growing up in Burnham Wood with these two maybe witches, definitely wise women, um, definitely like healers in their community. Gilly is a young girl whose family was uprooted, um, her life kind of devastated by the wars that Macbeth has raged across Scotland. So he is a great warrior at the start of the play. That's why he's like being lauded, et cetera. Um, and I like that this book says, okay, what would that have looked like? Like what were these wars, like these clan wars and what kind of destruction might have Macbeth wrought on various communities? And that's where the author, um, Rebecca Reisert takes her inspiration from. So Gilly definitely has a grudge against, more than a grudge, against Macbeth. And she wants vengeance. And the way, from what I remember, the way everything kind of connects and the way you get Gilly's backstory and how the plan sort of comes together is quite well done in the sense that they're not plot twists, but there are these moments of revelation that are really fun for Macbeth readers. So I don't want to say any more than that, but um, this is a very, um, a very interesting retelling of Macbeth. And even though it's told from one of the witches' perspectives, this is very grounded in reality. Um, our witches here are not, like I said, they're healers, wise women, but not necessarily supernatural forces at play here, which I think is a really interesting way to turn this story on its head. And I really, really enjoyed this one when I read it. So that is The Third Witch by Rebecca Reisert. Yeah, it was published all the way in 2001. So this is a very backlist title. And I think I think a lot of our listeners who liked books like, you know, throwing out like The Marriage Portrait um, or Hamnet, like these forgotten women sort of stories would like this one. I think it sounds great. And it's really fun. A lot of libraries probably still have it, even though it's out of print. I think, so this is kind of a side tangent, but I think as the sort of behind the scenes of publishing and the marketing of publishing becomes more visible to readers through authors sharing their stories through bookstagram, all of that, I think that we've learned that you, like as an author, it's not like, oh, I write a book and then it's so popular and it sells to everybody and I'm famous now. It's not like that at all. So many authors have books that like maybe only sell 2000 copies, which Mm -hmm. isn't a lot in the grand scheme of things, or maybe even less. And that's like the majority of books that get published. Um, So I just want to throw that out there. That doesn't mean just because it didn't get all the marketing money and wasn't the buzziest book and isn't still like at the top of all of the fall lists doesn't necessarily mean that it was a bad book. If you really enjoyed it, Sarah, I believe you. (laughs) I'm sure it was great. It's just, that's publishing. 
I believe me too. It's just it, when it also was so long ago that I read it, yeah. I'm like, you know. But I do think this book would be such a great fall read. And how fun would it be if all of a sudden Rebecca Reisert is like, hmm, why are all of these people checking my book out of from their libraries right now? Or why are, you know, these $23 copies <laughs> selling all of a sudden? That'd be really fun. So I hope some people check out The Third Witch. It'd be a perfect pairing, of course, while we're reading Macbeth. Okay, I have another book that I think is perfect for fall and that I don't think was super popular when it first came out, but has seen a little bit of a resurgence. I've seen it on a lot of fall lists and it's recommended more often, I think now than it was even when it first was published in 2017, I believe. It's If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. And this is a really fun Shakespeare-inspired and it's not a Shakespeare adaptation. It's just like a lot of Shakespeare in the book um, campus novel about a group of actors. And it's one of my favorite mystery structures, which is where you know that something happened and you know who sort of did it or who is taking the blame at the beginning of the book. And then the rest of the book is sort of flashbacks and backtracking to figure it out. So we know that at the beginning of the book, Oliver Marks has served 10 years in prison for murder. We just don't know the details of that, but we get the sense that something wasn't quite right with his confession and that maybe he was lying and that there's a lot of cover up here. And so the detective is retiring the one who is on his case and wants to know, okay, dude, what really happened? And so the rest of the book is what actually happened. And so the mystery unravels in that way. So it's not necessarily like a procedural whodunit. It's more of like a mystery within a story of the this campus novel, this group of actors. So Oliver is an actor. It's this like tight-knit troupe at a prestigious arts college. And he and his friends basically like mirror themselves. Like the one who plays the hero on the stage is sort of like the handsome hero off stage. And the femme fatale on stage is also the seductress off stage. And so their drama like filters from the wings into their real lives. And that results in some really dangerous things, like murder. (laughs) One of them turns up dead. That's not a spoiler. You know from the beginning of the book that a murder was committed. But you don't know right away who is the one who was murdered. And so I think it's really page-turning to be picking up all of these details. It's not necessarily like a puzzle mystery or just like, really reading on because you know that things will be slowly revealed to you. Um, And yeah, it's really fun. It's got that campus vibe that's perfect for fall. It's got lots of Shakespeare references. Um, Shakespeare's dialogue is sort of woven into the dialogue from the characters really well, because of course they're they're majoring in Shakespeare. Like they are training to be Shakespearean actors. And so 
it's not that they're just like speaking Shakespeare on stage. They're sort of like speaking in Shakespearean to each other in their regular lives. And I thought that was really fun. I don't think you have to love Shakespeare in order to enjoy this book, but it sure made it a lot more fun for me. Um, So I love If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. I think I might be due for a reread. I think it would be fun to reread it. Oh, you should definitely do that. That would be a fun way to, because I mean, we're reading Macbeth this month, which won't take long or we'll watch a version or whatnot. So adding onto the experience for yourself, I think would be really fun. All right. Um, my next book is also super backlist. It came out in 2003. It is a Pulitzer prize winner. It's a thousand acres by Jane Smiley. So this book is a retelling of King Lear and I, I mean, I think Shakespeare retellings are interesting, which ones get done more often. And I don't know how many King Lear retellings there are, but it seems one that's like really like ripe for retelling because of um, the plot. And in this version, our, our Lear-like figure is Larry. He is a very successful farmer in Iowa. And at the beginning of the story, he decides to um, incorporate his farm and make his three daughters the joint owners of that uh, incorporation in order to avoid having to pay state taxes when he when he dies and the property goes to his daughters. One of the daughters, the youngest daughter, um, Caroline, I think her our Cordelia name figure is in in a thousand acres she objects and so larry he's very he's very volatile and he uh, objects to her objection and just says she's cut out of the will she's cut out of the family she he wants nothing more to do with her caroline has been um she was the one daughter who left the small Iowa town to go to college, and she's now a lawyer. Um, the book is actually, though, told. You'd think that a King Lear retelling might be told from Cordelia's perspective. This one is not. Um, it's told through Ginny's perspective. She's our Goneril figure. Um, she is the, I think she's the, this is a point of, I think she's the oldest sister, um, but she very much, doesn't behave like the oldest sister in in the story and for a variety of ways. And then Rose is her other sister who stayed in town. They've both married um, men who now help Larry work on the farm, et cetera. So I'm really not doing a good job of selling this book, but it is a family drama and it is dramatic. It is very soapy almost, very like pulpy in some, some ways. I thought the writing was really spectacular, the way she talks about the Iowa heat, the way she talks about small town life and, um, oh, the niceties, but also the kind of like gossip and the backstabbiness of some of uh, the small community. And of course, this is a Shakespearean tragedy. I liked the way that she tried to work in some of the more dramatic moments of Shakespeare's Lear, like the storm sequences, etc. Um, but I I keep saying I liked because I read this with my Fiction Matters book club and it was a very polarizing one. Like half of the people 
found like almost a new favorite, really loved this one and half really hated it. And there's certainly some uh, choices that Jane Smiley makes that will either really make you mad or you'll be like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I'm intrigued by what she's doing here. So, and some of those choices I think are, they're spoilery. They're also, um, they're, they would be content warning worthy. So feel free to message me. I'd be happy to tell you more about that if you're interested, but not sure about a thousand acres. Or of course you could look on the story graph site. Um, Ginny who works with us, Ginny is the narrator of a thousand acres, but our Ginny who writes our, um, show notes and helps us over here at novel pairings. She loved this book. So shout out to Ginny and her for helping me see this book in a new light. It is a thousand acres by Jane Smiley. That sounds perfect for book clubs. So mm-hmm. take note if you want to get a little Shakespearean. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. What's your next one? Okay. This one is YA. And there are a ton of YA Shakespeare adaptations, and I find that really interesting. Yes, I noted the same thing. So this is Exit Pursued by a Bear by E.K. Johnston, and it is kind of a retelling, sort of inspired by I don't it's been a while since I read it. It came out in 2016, so I don't remember exactly how much it mirrors The Winter's Tale, but that's what it is based on and inspired by. So the main character's name is Hermione Winters, and she is at cheerleading camp when the book opens. And I thought, like, I don't think I want to read a book about cheerleaders at cheerleading camp, but that's not what the book is about at all. Um but she is the captain of her team. She is um, basically like the queen bee, but she's not mean in any way. Um, she's like just a, a, a really talented, popular cheerleader. Um, and she is in her last year with this cheerleading team. Um, and then at cheerleading camp, there's a party towards the end. Someone puts something in her drink. Um, and she all of a sudden finds her identity completely shifting in the narrative of her life and the way that people see her now. She's a victim. Um, she was raped and, um, she just doesn't know what to do anymore. And the majority of the book deals with the fallout, um, and how she chooses to write the narrative herself. I would definitely look up content warnings before reading this one. It's very mature YA. But I remember feeling like by the end of the book, she it ended on a triumphant note. So some parts were difficult to read. Um, but I, I remember the ending being hopeful. And um, I think that this would pair really well with Know My Name. The memoir. I think that it would be a great pairing. Like if you have a student who reads Exit Pursued by a Bear and wants to sort of read something similar. Uh, yeah, it's been, like I said, it's been a while since I read it, but I remember liking it, thinking it was well done, but definitely look up some content warnings before going into it. I, I read this one and I, um, I don't think this is a, a spoiler to say, 
But one of the things that I thought was so refreshing about this book is that Hermione is not by everyone, but she has people who believe her and support yep. her immediately. Um, and it's not entirely about um, a survivor of a sexual assault trying to be heard. And I, I just found that really refreshing. So also just, I think, you know, obviously, like you said, for older teens, et cetera, but I, I would hope a good book for older teens to mm-hmm. encounter for that reason. And E.K. Johnston is prolific mm-hmm. in YA. I mean, they've just written so many books. So yeah, but this is, I think, one of their earlier published ones. And yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Sarah, because I remember thinking the same thing. Like, this is this is really refreshing. As far mm-hmm. as as horrible as the situation is, the adults and the friends in Hermione's life do everything right. Mm-hmm. And we need to see that. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. All right. Um, my next pick actually was another Fiction Matters book club selection. You all like um, Shakespeare over there. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one was we we really, this one we read because we wanted to read a classic retelling. The the King Lear book, A Thousand Acres, we read because we wanted like a hot summary book. Um, but the, this one, was, I will say this one was not popular, but I thought it was really fun. And all of my other books are pretty heavy because I feel like the tragedies get retold more than the comedies. So this one is Ann Tyler's version of The Taming of the Shrew. It's called Vinegar Girl. And it's part of the Hogarth Shakespeare collection. So if you go onto like bookshop or something and see it, you'll see it listed as um, Hogarth Shakespeare number three, I think, as if it's a series, but it's not not a series. You don't have to read them in order. But this is basically um, Hogarth's project of getting really famous uh, quality writers to novelize and contemporize Shakespeare's stories. And Ann Tyler chose Taming of the Shrew because she hates it. <laughs> and you can maybe kind of see that at work in this book. Like she's not paying homage in the same way that some other retellings are. She's, I think, kind of, um, she's she's poking fun at it and also um, in some ways making it more relatable or easier for a contemporary audience, but not in a way that like lets Shakespeare off the hook for the absolute ridiculousness of this plot and some of the horrible things that happen in this comedy. We have to cover Taming of the Shrew at some point. (laughs) Um, But so this book is about Kate Batista. She works at a preschool. She very much is, she's very blunt. She calls it like she sees it. The children love her for this, her employers and the children's parents do not love her for this. Um, she has a much younger sister named Bunny. Bunny is very much their father's favorite. He is a, a scientist and he has um, a research assistant who is about to lose his work visa. So he proposes that Kate marry his research assistant to get him his green card. And that's how we end up with this uh, forced marriage of of convenience um, in a modern time. 
I thought there were some really hilarious moments in in this book, um, but also some like really um, good moments of, of fury and great speeches about. And you know, speeches aren't something that we tend to see happen in novels. But I liked that Anne Tyler was like, Shakespeare gives his characters these monologues. My characters are going to stand up and say what they feel sometimes. Um, and there are great speeches about gender expectations. Um, I think you just can't approach this one in a way that's like thinking it's like really like serious literature, even though it's by Anne Tyler and a Shakespeare retelling. It's just more fun and funny. And I don't know, it's totally unlike any of Ann Tyler's other books. So just because you love some of her family, quiet family stories does not necessarily mean you're going to like this one. But it felt like somebody like gave her this project, which is basically what happened. And she was like, sure, I'll have fun with this. And so if you read it with that in mind, I think it's really enjoyable. Um, That is Vinegar Girl by Ann Tyler. I think there's so much room to play with Shakespeare. I mean, every stage production is a little bit different somehow. And we have so many uh, groups who will take a Shakespearean play and adapt it for the stage and give it some sort of theme. I've seen A Midsummer Night's Dream done five different ways. It's the same play, but it's set in different time periods or the characters are from different places. I saw a production once where a couple of the characters like had Brooklyn accents because they were like in the woods of upstate New York or something like they had escaped New York City. There there are so many fun ways to go about it, which is why it does surprise me a little bit that the tragedies do seem more popular for retellings. Yeah. So I don't know if it's because the comedies often have like a much bigger cast of characters. The tragedies often center on like there is a main character with a tragic flaw and it's easier to hone in on those one to three people who get the most quote stage time. Um, or if it's just like that that follows that um I don't know, just the the dramatic structure of a novel so well. But I think Macbeth, King Lear, wrote there's so many Romeo and Juliet retellings and adaptations. I do think it's really interesting that, like you said, the tragedies seem, and maybe if we counted them up, it would be a little bit more even, but the tragedies seem to be more of the go-to for so many authors. Yeah, especially in adult fiction like maybe some of there's more of the more of the comedies get retold I'm just speculating like you said we could count them up but looking at the Hogarth Shakespeare there are only seven books out in this series right now um Vinegar Girl which is the Taming of the Shrew retelling and then Shylock is my name which is a Merchant of Venice retelling Merchant of Venice is a comedy right yeah or it's not like this, it's yeah, not a it's not a tragedy. super fun one, <laughs> right? Well, and I mean this. It's called Shylock is my name. I I haven't read it. I would like to. I imagine that this is more of a examining and reconciling mm-hmm. with Shakespeare's uh, one named Jewish character. But yeah, so on this list of seven, right of 
you know, uh, the publishing company approaching these authors and saying, what Shakespeare would you like to retell? We don't have many people choosing comedies. So good on Ann Tyler. Also, Gillian Flynn, where is your Hamlet? Let's where's go, lady. Hamlet? Come what on. What have you been doing the last two years? It's okay. like all I, the second that comes out, that's all I want to read. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even see it like listed anymore as like forthcoming. Maybe she gave so, up. I'm worried that that's what happened and it's upsetting. But anyways, what's next on your list? <laughs> I have a collection of retellings. This is this is a YA collection and it's from Dahlia Adler. So I believe that I've recommended her Edgar Allan Poe collection on the podcast a couple of times before. She's got several of these. She's listed as the editor, but she also writes one of the short stories. Um, And she basically gathers up all of these young adult authors to retell um, some of their favorite Shakespeare plays or Edgar Allan Poe stories or whatever it is that the collection is focusing on. This is a really fun short story collection. So it's called That Way Madness Lies. It's edited by Dahlia Adler, but like I said, lots of authors involved here. And I like that the there was sort of a fun introduction to this, and they sort of mention all of the Shakespeare retellings, West Side Story, 10 Things I Hate About You, and how a lot of these are teen movies. Um, and just sort of connecting teens to Shakespeare and that sort of like history of retellings. It was, it was a really fun introduction. I like to listen to these on audio. Um, and then Dahlia Adler specifically said, I'm Jewish and I wanted to rewrite The Merchant of Venice. I wanted to go there. And that's what a lot of authors are doing. They're sort of, um, writing and reshaping the identities of certain characters or enhancing the identities of certain characters, whether it is um, rewriting the Shakespeare play to feature more people of color or whether it is focusing on LGBTQ plus identities. Um, A lot of these authors are just like bringing a, a different diversity to the stories. I am trying to look at the list and see if there are any specifically that I really enjoyed. This is a really good, so we were just talking about how tragedies are more popular. This is a really good mix. There are some tragedies. There is a Macbeth retelling. Um, There is a Julius Caesar retelling, um, but there's also Much Ado About Nothing. Someone, um, actually Brittany Cavallaro, uh, decided to turn a sonnet into a short story, which is super fun. Melissa Basherdust, who you've really liked um, some of her novels before, uh, writes a short story inspired by Winter's Tale. So this is a great one if you've got um, students or teens in your life who are interested in Shakespeare. But I think it's super fun for adults too. And like I said, it's great on audio. It's These are kind of my go-to if I really have a short attention span Um, because they're just fun, bite-sized short stories. And yeah, I really liked this collection. So it's That Way Madness Lies, and it's edited by Dahlia Adler. 
All right. I, I said I needed some levity with Vinegar Girl because most of my books were sad. And my next one is uh, no exception. Um, it is New Boy by Tracy Chevalier, which is another book in the Hogarth Shakespeare collection. It is a retelling of Othello with 11-year-olds. Oof. I mean... Just knowing that, you know that this is going to be a a tough read. Um, Chevalier is an exceptional writer. We are in great hands here. And it's only about 200 pages long. This is a novella. So she's clearly like taking this um, and... Making it making it a real tragedy is the way one reviewer put it, which I think is an interesting way to put it because, I mean, of course, Othello is tragic um, extremely, but it's, it's an interesting one because we don't necessarily see the character's motivations um, depending on how Othello is played. I think he can be fairly sympathetic or not. Um, and this by like really like telling this with children, um, it makes it like really, really heart wrenching. Um, so this is a book about, um, a young boy named Osei. He is, um, a, the son of a, a diplomat, I believe. And so he's traveled, he's moved around, gone to many, many different schools. It's really hard for him to find friends. And, on his first day at the school, he befriends this girl named Dee, who is like the most popular girl in the class. I think they're in fourth or fifth, fifth grade, probably. Um, and oh, it just feels like kind of the sun is smiling on him when Dee wants to be his friend. But there is a boy named Ian there who um, does not want to witness this friendship, doesn't appreciate it, and plots to destroy them. It takes place over the course of one day. Um, and the way the story is told, we're kind of kept at a distance from the, the, the main characters. Um, but it's really, really powerfully done. Um, of course I should say that Osei is black and D and Ian are white and the book takes place in, um, the 1970s um, in Washington, D.C. And so there's just like a lot of uh, a lot of racial tensions that Chevalier is, of course, exploring more than tensions. There's racial animosity. There's racism that she's um, exploring in this story. And so I, I this is a really good one, but it is not for the faint of heart. Um, it's the the movie O with Julia Stiles, who is in like every um, <laughs> every teen Shakespeare adaptation during my youth. Um, it feels kind of reminiscent of that, except we're dealing with much younger kids, of course. So I also really like a book that takes place over the span of a day. And the way she builds the tension is very similar to the way that Shakespeare builds builds tension throughout Othello. So that is New Boy by Tracy Chevalier. Next up, I had to include Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel in here. I know that this isn't a Shakespeare retelling and that Shakespeare isn't even necessarily the 
main part of this book, but I find the way that Emily St. John Mandel weaves Shakespeare into the story and sort of like uses Shakespeare to exemplify art that transcends centuries and that gets passed on and on the way she does with the sort of comic book graphic novel that's in the the book as well. I just find all of that to be so charming. So in Station Eleven, there is a group of Shakespearean, not even just like actors, like this is just a group of people who got together as a traveling troupe. We have musicians and actors and just like generally creative people, but people who were seeking a family. They travel around to um, different cities uh, and perform Shakespeare's plays in their own special way. This is a post-apocalyptic novel or post-pandemic novel. And so uh, what the plays look like. <laughs> they're not necess- They're not uh, going to the main city theater in town and putting up these big set pieces. They're, they're a traveling troupe of actors, more like um, medieval times, basically, uh, even pre-Shakespeare, <laughs> what they're doing. And yeah, I just, I, I find all of that really charming I, I loved that part of Station Eleven. I think it it does deserve a place on Shakespeare lists, even though, like I said, that's not necessarily the main part of it. It's an intentional choice that Emily St. John Mandel makes. And I just, I really like that one. And I think it's it's a, a great one, whether you love Shakespeare or not, when you just kind of want that little that little touch of Shakespeare, but not a whole lot. My last pick is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And I just will say everything you just said about Station Eleven (laughs) um, is why I picked this one. Um, I love the way you put it, that Shakespeare is woven into these stories as an allusion to the enduring legacy of of art and how great art gets passed on. I think that's so smart, so well said. Um, what I love in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is the way Zevin is folding the world of video games into this novel. You have probably heard, if you haven't picked this one up yet, you have probably heard it's about video games, but you don't need to enjoy video games to read it. That's absolutely true. Although I do think you just have to be okay with like being immersed in a very specific world and culture for an entire book. But Gabrielle Zevin is a great guide into that culture. And she uses a lot of literary Easter eggs and references um, throughout. And so if so that's great for a book lover because you'll have some familiar things to latch on to as you enter this video game world. Of course, the title is taken from Macbeth, and I don't necessarily even want to really say more about that title because I it's not of course it's not a spoiler, but it's just a joy to find when that title comes up and the characters talk about it and why she chose that title. Um, but I I love I love a book that's titled from a Shakespeare play because then you get to think about the greater connections, like, of course, love the sound and the fury. Anyways, yours is, yours is similar in that regard, I guess, your next book. 
Yeah, this is this is one that you probably want to list too. We both love this book. <laughs> yeah, we loved this one. It's so weird. It is really weird. It's All's Well by Mona Awad. And it's about a theater professor. And I thought that that was really fun to delve into. So we have a theater professor who used to be an actress. And she like really reminisces about those days when she was acting and was able to be on stage. But she was in a horrible car accident and she now suffers from chronic pain debilitating chronic pain. And so she just, she is really in excruciating pain every day and living with that. And that's a significant part of this book. So she is the college theater director. She is just bound and determined to put on a production of All's Well That Ends Well because it holds special meaning to her. It was I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the last play that she was in before her accident. She just holds a lot of um, memories about that performance and that time in her life. But her cast really, really wants to put on Macbeth. And (laughs) I think that this is really fascinating. First of all, Macbeth is known as the cursed play. We'll have a Patreon episode up about that. Um, But the, the students are like ready to stage a mutiny because they so desperately want to put on Macbeth. And honestly, um, I there were a lot of moments in that book where I like sided with the students. The theater <laughs> professor here is wanting to put on All's Well for totally selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. Macbeth is a much better play um, for these young actors to like add to their sort of resumes um, to showcase their talents. And it's one that they know and love better. So they are just way more excited about Macbeth. Well, um, she goes to a bar and she meets three mysterious men who are very emblematic of the three witches. But I think it's really interesting. They're like these men in suits (laughs) that she talks to. Um, And they offer her this opportunity to get rid of her pain, to champion um the play that she wants to perform in the college theater program and she just this book is like you said really weird this book is bananas she gets very power hungry she gets ambitious um so there's there are a lot of of course references to all's well that ends well but it's it's very Macbeth inspired i found uh I really liked this. I listened to it on audio and actually really loved that experience. So All's Well by Mona Awad. Sarah, do you have anything to add about this one? No, I just loved it. I thought I she I, have you read other Mona Awad? Not yet. She this was is my first one so, I heard. Her imagination is so kooky and wild and I I loved this and I I agree like the you don't necessarily side <laughs> with the theater teacher all the time which is a really fun position to be in as as a reader. I thought I I loved it. So good. Um great Shakespeare nuggets throughout of course. I just want to add I like I even offhand threw this title out and I can't believe it's not on my list. Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. I didn't Okay, I was I did not put it on my list because I was convinced that you were going to put it on yours. <laughs> well, 
I guess this shows you where my brain is these days, which is not focused. But, but okay, I'm going to turn this into an illuminating moment. Okay. I mean, I think part of it, perhaps, no, part, it's because I completely forgot. But Shakespeare's name is never mentioned in the entire novel, which is such a wonderful choice on Maggie O'Farrell's part. So Hamnet is the story of Anne Hathaway not the actress, Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway. She goes, she's called Agnes in the book. Um, Names were weird back in the day, you guys. Hamnet and Hamlet were like the same name. Anne and Agnes were like the same name. Don't ask me to explain that. I don't understand, (laughs) but it's true. And so, so Agnes, she's much, much older than, than William Shakespeare, who she ended up marrying. They had um, twins, Judith and Hamnet, who uh, historically, both twins got very ill. Hamnet died of the plague at a very young age. I I think like 10, is that? That sounds right to me. Um, And so this is the story of of that illness. And it flashes back and forth between the the present day with Hamnet being so gravely ill and William and Agnes's courtship, but he's never called William or Shakespeare. He's just the the playwright, I think is what she, she calls him throughout. And it's so, so brilliant and so lovely and really just kind of, I think I loved it because it illuminates a the importance of a small and minor life. Like Shakespeare is a name, as we've talked about, that we're talking about it in this episode that, you know, uh, you talked about it so beautifully too on our Ask a Shakespeare Professor episode that he's almost important. His writing's important now because it's important because there's so many references and it reaches back so far and it's been his work has been so ubiquitous that now it's like you can't get it out of the cultural consciousness. It's just ever present. Um, but the way Maggie O'Farrell is like, I'm going to tell a sliver of this man's life, but without using his name and showing that, you know, these, these three individuals, Agnes, Hamnet, and Judith, who, whose names are almost lost to history, they lived essential lives too. They, their lives were just as important. Um, and I think that that was so beautifully done in, in Hamnet. So bonus pick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, readers, we'll have even more Shakespearean bonus titles to share with you. You can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to join our Patreon community and download those bonus episodes on Fridays to get extra book recommendations and Macbeth-inspired content this month. But we don't just put out content related to the book that we're reading. Sarah and I also share bonus episodes about what we're currently reading, just um, some general bookish thoughts, reflections on the reading life, pairings based on a theme or topic, sometimes a show that we're watching. So if you are not interested in all of the Macbeth content, but you still want more from Sarah and me, head over to our Patreon community. It's the nerdiest corner of the bookish internet right now, and we would love for you to join us. For announcements and important updates from us, 
subscribe to Novel Pairings newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com or follow us on Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram. That's where we share more about what we're up to. Um, And if you haven't left a review for Novel Pairings on Apple Podcasts, please do so this month. We are really eager to reach new listeners who love the Bard and your reviews really, truly do make an impact for our show. Thank you, as always, to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to discuss the Scottish play. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.